The 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition series is about real ongoing homicide investigations. The following conversation may be disturbing to some people and is not recommended for all ages. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition. I'm your host, Andy O'Brien. On Saturday, August 27th, 2016, at approximately 6.12 p.m., Toronto police responded to a shooting on Monroe Street. The victim was 61-year-old Peggy Smith, who was pronounced dead after suffering from gunshot wounds. Peggy was a daughter, mother, and grandmother, who was loved and adored by her family. Her daughter Lisa and grandson Jerome spoke to us about who Peggy was in her lifetime. She was a great mother. Um, she, uh, I mean, she's always been a sweet person, cares about everybody. Uh, she grew up actually on the street uh, next to where she was murdered. My grandparents' house was on Hamilton Street. She was a hard and working mom. Raised you she, three. She raised us three. Away. My dad passed away when we were seven. I have to say she was the best mom to us. Uh, we never had no complaints about her. All around, she was just a great, loving person. She cared for everybody. For my early days, just knowing my nan, uh, I just always remember her. She, she ended up having 13 grandkids, but back then, obviously, it would have been. And at the time, it so. was one, one great-grandchild, but now she has two would have two great-grandchildren today. I just remember she would always, she was super caring, and uh, she was always, always around. It was, it was really never, even when we were young, I always remember her being around and doing stuff, taking us places, and uh, just being part of the family all the time. And she, I don't know how she did it, but she always, she was able to divide her time up equally amongst all of us, which was, I, I still don't know how she did it to this day. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, nothing but great memories of looking back on the things that she did for me and just all the kind gestures. And I just remember a moment, a memory that stands out for me is I remember just every Saturday when I first started learning to play hockey down at Moss Park Arena on Sherburn, she that she would always be there. And like, this is when I was super small. I wouldn't even be able to carry my hockey bag. She would help. And she would, and yeah. she must have, I don't know, probably like, 50 or so <laughs> carrying yeah. my hockey tiny bag little petite woman in the winter <laughs> carrying and, this heavy hockey bag and, and it was always a thing of hers to like make sure that i always had what i need needed especially after the game it was like a, a tradition where i would get a, a hot dog and a gatorade <laughs> and and she would always make sure i had that and then she would come into the room after and with her febreze can i guess that she left in my hockey bag and she, <laughs> she'd be spraying the spraying whole spraying it all down yeah, yeah. So you knew she was always there every saturday and but yeah, she just was, yeah, she was our rock. She held the, the family together. We were close, like me and my sisters. We all lived in that same neighborhood, so like we were a close knit family. Like she visit one house to another because we were all in that same neighborhood. So that was a great thing. She spent every day with us. Like she would make her rounds, and she was there for us when we needed her, or even the grandchildren. She was super with the grandchildren. She came from a big, pretty big family. We had uh, quite a few siblings. Seven kids in her family that she was raised in. Uh, I guess where that's where the family yeah. oriented person came they from. Were, so yeah, always being around her own family, and uh, I guess uh, she always wanted to have a big family. 
I really had a really uh, a great bond with her. Uh, it was like she was a best friend, even though she was my grandma. But I guess all of our grandmas are best friend grandparents. She was my best friend too. My sister said the same thing. Like we would, uh, especially in my later in my teenage years, uh, I really got really close with her in terms of just we would go on like coffee dates and stuff and. We both found that really uh, enjoyable, just going her favorite place was Second Cup. So that, that became a special thing. Uh, I would look forward to it, just just being able to talk to her. And she'd always be, she'd always listen, like any problems you had, she was there and she would always offer her support and uh, any kind of uh, a positive feedback to get you through whatever you were going through and then same thing I, it was open two-way street she would talk to me about things and just things that are bothering her or just things going on in the world so our our relationship was great like I said she had that relationship with all of us all the grandkids her daughters I like I said I don't know how she was able to keep that up with all of us but we all had our, uh, our own special relationship with her and she did a really good job at making us feel each special in our mm-hmm. own way and I, I think that's just one of her characteristics of herself where she really put others before herself and she would care for us all the same. And she's the type of person that would uh, give her shirt off her back just to make sure you had a shirt. She'd help anybody out if they asked her if they needed money or whatever. She was there to do that. My graduation on August 19th or something that month. And uh we come back obviously she's so happy super smile like, we had to have a little party gathering for him and so she said no no i'll yeah, go home i'll go get the cake and she this and that a big we'll part have, of that after yeah. party just making sure i felt again making sure that i felt special she on went up up the lane way and was telling everybody my grandson he's a firefighter now and like she was just so proud I mean, yeah was that was just pre-getting yeah, to do. Was, <laughs> he wasn't yet there but he was getting there but she at least she made it to that to see that he was going forward with with it and yeah. she was extremely so proud. even if it wasn't me that she was parading up the laneway if she was doing it to anyone i'd be like that is so nanny to be oh, she's yeah. just so so happy and so proud of if you if you completed something sitting with me in our studio to discuss the case is acting detective sergeant steve smith of toronto homicide unit how are you steve great andy thanks great and always glad to uh to have you here and and discuss these cases i think that uh you know they haven't i think they haven't been able to use the platform of the podcast to kind of get a little bit more um opportunity to shed some more light hopefully remind some people of what had transpired and i guess we'll get we'll jump right into uh peggy's day what what was peggy doing uh on the day of her murder so peggy was a 61 year old female and she was living at a retirement residence she actually wasn't living on monroe street her family members were living on monroe at the time and she went down for the day it was a nice august day um and she went down to visit them in 2016. um unfortunately that day some uh Unknown individuals decided to uh, fire some weapons in the area of where Peggy was standing and she was struck with a a bullet. So this was, where was the exact uh, location? It's Monroe Street, south of Dundas. So really the old Don Mount Court area. Which is Regent uh, Park. Uh, It's just the other side of the Don Valley from Regent Park. So it's basically just if you go across Gerard or Dundas, it's just on the other side of of Regent Park, just a little uh, east of Regent Park. And the events that played out, um they kind of led to Peggy's death what do you what do you think they are kind of let's just let's kind of set the stage 
Well, at the time, Regent Park was being um, renovated, so they were tearing down a lot of the residents and, and rebuilding it as you see it today with uh, a vibrant community. So a lot of the members that had been living over in um, Regent Park had been moved to other parts of the city, and some had been moved to uh, the housing complex over on Monroe Street. So they were residing there now instead of in the old Regent Park. So that could have been a conflict that uh, that led to Peggy's death. Yeah, because I wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit for those at home, because the uh, a lot of things have changed since the the murder in terms of where buildings are, where people are now located. Um, so I think it's it's important for us to kind of set the stage, and I guess the events that. Play Played out in the last moments of Peggy's life. What can you set a little bit of uh, of, of that stage for us as well? So, as we said, uh, Regent Park was being uh, renovated. Um, so people had been moved all over the cities, and they they'd been residing in different places. So, back in the day, you had a number of people that uh, that thought the same, that lived in the same areas, protected the same areas, um, gangs of sort. Yeah, worked in the areas. Some of these people were moved to Monroe Street. Uh, at the time of Peggy's death, she was out on the back um, patio of, of her family's residence. And there was people out beside her, beside the home where she was at. Those people um, had come from Regent Park. Uh, the One of the, the people is a known gang member from the Regent Park area. At that time, two males walked south along the uh, Don Mount laneway in behind the residence of Monroe Street and they opened fire on uh, on the residence beside Peggy's and unfortunately um, Peggy was shot. And what, what was some of the evidence that was collected from the scene? There was about 10 shell casings collected from the scene of that eight went into the one residence where the known gang member had lived and two went into Peggy's residence. One went through the window and unfortunately one actually hit Peggy and and killed her. And were all of these shots from the same individuals or was there was there an actual crossfire that can be proved that there was other individuals shooting back? No, it doesn't look like there was people shooting back. It looks like all the uh, projectiles were from a nine millimeter weapon that was fired from the laneway towards the homes. So we're going to take a look at some pictures we have of the scene and discuss them, Steve. The, the first picture um, that we're looking at here is the walkway. Can you just discuss a little bit about what we're looking at here in as much description as possible? This is the rear um, area of the townhouse at on Monroe Street. As you can see, there's a small set of stairs leading up to the main floor of the residence. It's labeled clearly with 61 unit four. Yeah. There's also a downstairs um, half sunken uh, basement area that's covered by a fence. There's a patio halfway up the landing um, and leads into the the red brick area of the townhouses of Monroe Street. It went, once you get down the staircase, you're down into the laneway and the alleyway. You can see where the, uh, the garbage is put out for the trucks to pick up and such. So that's the laneway that runs in behind Monroe Street. And do we know how many individuals would have been on the patio kind of let's set the stage what this would have looked like during the actual crime yeah at the time there would have been at least a few of her family members out there so it's lucky that i mean it's it's lucky that only one person was struck out of everybody because 10 with the, shots that's right? right with 10 shots you you could have hit everybody that was out there um obviously it's it's 
horrific that Peggy was struck and killed just uh, enjoying a day with her family. But it could have been much, much worse with all those, that number of bullets that were fired. We also have a picture of some glasses here. Where were these found and how did they get there? So from the previous picture, you can see where there's a a fall off from the um, the area where they were sitting down to the laneway. So that's that's down below the staircase sitting on the ground. So obviously people panicked as the shots fired, whether she was hit and her glasses fell off her face or whether she was trying to flee when she heard the shots and her glasses fell off and fell to the uh, to the the basement area because there was a number of shots so not sure i don't think we'll know which shot actually uh, hit peggy but they're probably as soon as you have a couple zinging around the you know their area there she there was probably some panic that set in that's right i mean she, we don't know whether the shots came across and she had panicked tried to run lost her glasses maybe got confused in which way she was going or tried to grab her glasses um, we don't really know though the answers to those but regardless it's a it's a horrific event and her glasses ended up on the ground as she was struck with a bullet and then we can actually see a picture of a bullet which looks like one of in the uh, black railing of the patio um, let's talk about the type of bullet how many were found and let's talk about the murder weapon there were 10 shell casings found and they were all nine millimeters. So it's believed that one person was firing from the laneway. Uh, two individuals were seen in the laneway, but it appears as one had pulled out and was firing the weapons. And you can see the sort of destruction that was there. I mean, that's a metal railing and you see how that's ripped to shreds. So you can just imagine what a bullet like that would do to, to a human body. How far was the laneway? probably between 20 and 30 feet away from where the shots were fired to where they ended up. So reasonably close. This was definitely a targeted area. Absolutely. It's obvious that the, the person in beside them was a gang member. And it appears as though he may have been the target of these individuals as they walked down the laneway, whether they knew he was there and came looking for him or whether they just happened to be out in that laneway and happened to see him over a beef that who knows what had happened earlier in the day. So those those are questions that we don't have the answers to because the people in the house beside didn't provide us any assistance nobody at all nobody wanted to talk to us nobody wanted to provide us any uh, assistance as to what it might have gone on now i want to kind of look at the it looks like a bit more of a wider pan of the crime scene we've got some yellow tape crossing it off let's kind of talk let's set the stage here in terms of what's happening in this picture yeah as you can see the rear laneway um, there's cars parked. This is where people would park outside. Um, the townhouses, as you can see, stretch across the length of Monroe Street. What we're looking at is through the back alley on Don Mount Court. And you can see the red brick on the first floor and the siding up on the second floor. So the, they're decent sized townhouses. You have a basement. You have a main floor where there's walk ups with the staircases and places for people to sit. And then you have a patio up the top where people can also sit and enjoy the day. And you can see also how close the houses are. There's small barriers in between the two houses. Uh, so anybody that would be targeting someone in one house would definitely take the risk of shooting somebody in the house beside because of the close proximity. Yeah. And the gang, the, the active gang member that was known to police was just to the left there. Of That's the correct. Patio. That's correct. So was anybody on that side of the patio or was maybe that person on their patio? We believe that there was three people out on that patio at the time. And that's probably what the shooters had observed. 
as I said, whether it's that they came looking for this specific person or whether they came down the alleyway and happened to see him from something that had happened earlier in the day, week, month. We're not really sure on that because, as I said, they wouldn't provide us any assistance in the investigation. But these people were standing out here basically where we're looking and firing towards the townhomes. So somebody, I mean, we're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. We're talking about 12 or 13 windows that have full eye view of this, of, of the shooters at 6 p.m. at night during the summer. There's light out, 10 shots, takes a little bit of time to discharge. You're there for a substantial amount of time for someone to see you after you've released a first gunshot. Everybody would look out there. People would look out their window. They would look to see where that bang's coming from and then to follow up with nine more. Somebody has to have seen something that may be scared. Is that your, is that your take? And, and these individuals that were on the patio, they haven't mentioned anything to you guys in terms of possible leads or, or anything at all. Yeah, unfortunately, they weren't willing to provide us with any information. And there were a number of people in the neighborhood that did provide us their best descriptions. But I mean, basically, we're two males, right? So that's that's what we are at with our descriptions. There's, there's not a whole lot further to that. Um, people, obviously, when shots are fired, people's first instinct is to protect their own family which you understand. So whether they gathered, people took a quick look out after once the sh- shot stopped, um, you know, they did, people did the best that they could in such a stressful situation. It's just, it's really troubling that the individuals that were actually shot at don't see the need to try and protect these families. Some that live right beside them from these individuals who are still at large. Yeah. You'd hope people would be caring enough to be concerned about other people's lives, especially people that had nothing to do with this lifestyle, nothing to do with anything. And their life was taken for no other reason than they lived beside the wrong person. Just wrong place, wrong time. And I think, you know, I think what I wanted to do for this season too, is talk a little bit more about the individuals that do know something that because we talked when we were at homicide last week and i think we need to talk about what what these individuals are actually doing you know by withholding information by um you know trying to maybe protect themselves what they're doing is there's a family out there that is hurting from the loss of a loved one and in particular in this case that they had nothing to do with like you said that type of lifestyle and b you're you're withholding information to potentially save more lives because this will happen again if it hasn't already. This isn't the first time they aimed a gun at, at somebody, uh, my guess would be. So what are your thoughts on the people that are holding information? Yeah, I mean, it's hard for us to understand what it must feel like to have someone taken away in, in that sort of situation where you're out having a family barbecue and all of a sudden one of your family members lives is taken from you it's it's unbelievable to think about some of these gang members this may be more of a common occurrence to them and they may be a little uh, immune to it but you are correct they're adding to the they need to to come forward and add to the safety of the community. Um, things things happen in people's lives. People grow up. People move on. People move out of the area. They change their lifestyle. They get themselves a job. It's time for people to come forward and say, "This is what I know from that time." Yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, I believe there's good in everybody, and at some point, 
you have to wonder when the good is going to start surfacing for these individuals withholding information about somebody that died and letting their conscience be free and allowing themselves to actually be uh, a positive contributor to society by getting rid of this garbage off the street who's going to hurt somebody else if they haven't already and they will continue to do that and also groom younger people to do the same thing because that's what happens in these types of uh, in these types of uh, situations what's your what do you think uh, it's going to take for somebody to talk to you guys? What do you want to tell these individuals um, in terms of, you know, what are they actually doing here? Well, I mean, gangs and gang members are predominantly young males. So as they grow up, you hope that they realize the errors of their ways as they were younger. Um, they move on to either get educated, get a job, get a family. Um, yeah, life happens. Exactly. Hopefully. That's right. You you hope that that happens. And I mean, it, this must wear on people. I mean, if any of us knew the the whereabouts or the the names of killers, the first thing we'd want to do is get that off our chest. You couldn't live with that. You couldn't go to sleep every night knowing that you know who killed a 61-year-old grandmother who was there visiting her family for a barbecue and on a summer evening just before the kids are going to go back to school and such. Uh, I don't know how someone could could live with that and just compartmentalize it and not let it come out. So you would think that at some point, these people for their own good and the good of society would come forward and and let us know what they know. And I think, you know, let's we'll dig down a little bit deeper here, even more so to call people out a little bit. And let's really focus on I've pulled up the address here and if you want to explain the exact coordinates a little bit more in depth here, and then we're going to talk about who we think specifically may have done this or been involved. Yeah. So looking at the map, as you can see, so Dundas Street, as well as Queen Street and further up Girard, go across um, the Don River. So on the left hand side, off the side of the map is Regent Park, the old Regent Park now resurfaced. You've got your Don River and the Don Valley Parkway, you have Dundas and Queen going across both of those over the top of them. And just down between Queen and Dundas is Monroe Street. It runs up further north right up to Gerard Street. And it this used to be the old Don Mount Court area. As you can see, the one alleyway there where people were parked, it's still called Don Mount Court. So that used to be a massive housing complex Um Back when I started in the early 90s, there was a big housing complex there and people used to go back and forth from North Region over to uh, to Don Mount Court and back and forth. So um, that area there is it's all been redone. It's all new townhomes, a little older now. I mean, we've been we're five, six, seven years into it, but it was all redone. The housing projects were taken down. Everything there was was redone into condos, a mix of uh, a mix of condos housing co-ops um they redid the entire area so those were the townhouses that we were looking at in the picture and that's the alleyway that that backs on where the the vehicles were parked so steve we're going to roll into a video that we have here um let's talk about what we're watching here so this is security video from the housing complex so that's two males walking down the street and that's two males, the same two males running back north on Don Mount Court towards Dundas. So we believe that those males walked down. They conducted the, the I shooting. I see another two people 
um, a shadow behind those two individuals. Yeah, we, we're not sure who that is. Um, weren't able to identify who that person is. It's it's kind of a an odd shadowy figure um, looking out of the bush area. So there may have been a, further people with them. They may have had a vehicle up the street. They may have known where the cameras were in the area and parked out of view of the cameras, um, obviously to uh, to avoid being arrested and, and charged with the, the murder. So if, if we believe if they did come in in a vehicle, that it would be more of a targeted incident than it would be just a random came by and and ran into someone and so let's talk a little bit more again about the murder weapon um let's talk about uh what they were wearing as well in the video what 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 do you see here so it appears that the first male is wearing a gray uh, top with black pants um he has uh, some a hoodie up the second male as well gray with uh dark gray pants both of them hoodies up probably pulled tight so you can't see their faces slender slender young males obviously i mean you can see by the way they run their uh their young males are very fast um they get out of there up the alleyway very quickly to uh to make their escape and whether they jumped into a waiting car whether they took off on foot we weren't able to track them any further with the uh the cameras at that time of day and with that many people in that had a visual somebody without a doubt in my mind somebody knows who these guys are this is spread in terms of people have talked about this especially being young we've talked about this these guys are trying to impress one another they're trying to you know raise up in rank there's all kinds of things that uh, would drive them to talk to people people know about this there's not a doubt in my mind that they do what's your thoughts on that no i agree andy i mean especially in the gang culture these people are going to brag about what they did. They're going to go back and say, you know, I took shots at this person. I did this. I, you know, it, it's sort of bravado to them to come out and say, we went over the other gang's territory and we took shots at so-and-so we went after them. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what it would feel like to shoot a 61 year old woman. I mean, you're down there, you're shooting at another gang member and you, you hit a random citizen that had nothing to do with your beef or whatever, whatever's in your mind that makes you, be able to go and shoot another human being but you've taken someone's family member someone's grandmother someone's mother away from them and that doesn't bother you, you just go on with your day and brag about going to shoot people in in other gang territory i just to me it's it doesn't make any sense yeah and the other thing that jumps out of me is first of all they're unarmed so you're you're a you're a tough guy shooting at an unarmed unarmed people who aren't firing bullets back at you there's no strategy behind what you're doing you're a coward just shooting into a crowd of people that are unarmed. So I don't know what kind of rank anyone was looking to pull, but like you say, you've killed a 61 year old woman that was unarmed and you've left her family mourning. And those are grandkids. Uh, those are her kids that are not going to be able to grow up with her in their life. And I think this is, this comes to like we just discussed, you know, we need to talk to these people and say, you know, something, you know, and it's really important that, you know, the good in you surfaces and you do what's right because by withholding information from, you know, Toronto homicide, you're breaking the law essentially. And it, you're just doing something that's morally wrong. Even, even looking at this, uh, this video, we know that there's two individuals that come down. We know one person's a shooter. So at the very least, the other person knows the identity of 
the person to pull the trigger in that. And as you know, these guys are, they're young, they're bravado. They're, they're going out there bragging that that's them that did this when it's on the news and it's on, you know, they're sending text messages. That was me, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we know that there's a number of people that know who was involved in this shooting. So it's just, it's time for someone to come forward, whether it's crime stoppers or, or whoever that they want to call and let us know who the shooter was in this. I think the other individual, it's important to point out because I think a lot of people don't know this. When homicide find you, you're both going to pick up some heavy charges. Whereas you have an opportunity to allow the good in you to come out and do the right thing. And you will pick up a lot less of a charge than if you, when you are found as basically the accomplice to a murder with zero remorse, zero responsibility uh, by stepping up. You're no different than the shooter in the eyes of the law. That's right. Do you want to be a witness? Do you want to come forward and, and provide the truth and we can work with you on the charges? Or do you want to go down and, and, and spend your life in jail at first degree murder for shooting an innocent grandmother that's, that's just out having a barbecue with her family? Um, that, you know, that's going into jail. That's not going to be a real badge of honor to, uh, to go in and say you gunned down a 61 year old grandmother. Yeah. Um, hardcore as you were shooting at some other gangsters. Uh, you're not going to be looked at too favorably. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to reinforce that a little bit more is let's actually hear, um, we have a family member, uh, with a message, um, to the, the public and the killers. These are the final remarks that Peggy's family would like to leave the two individuals who took her life on that tragic day. I just um, live every day today trying to get through the days because like I said, she was like a best friend to me and she meant the world to all of us. And um, it did affect all of us. We're all, you know, lost without her. We all have our little depression. Like, like I said, living day to day is a, a struggle. Um, it has affected all of us in our own ways. My youngest son was there that day with me and my mother. And it has affected him. It's a day that I'll never forget. I always ask why her. I don't understand it, but I don't, there's so many questions I don't understand. I, I never got all the answers to. Um, I just, it's, it's just been very difficult to live day to day. It's, our lives are changed forever. Nothing's the same. It's, it's been very hard. It's a, a scar or a wound that I'll, I'll always have for the rest of my life. And I, my whole family will probably have just uh, knowing how she passed away. We're just hoping for them to, Think of their loved ones. Think of if it was their family, how hurt that they would be and how they would want to know who did this to their mother, daughter, sister, aunt, you know. We just want them to just come forward and just speak on it. Even if, yeah, if you're someone that knows something, just come out and let us know call two two tips if you uh, be anonymous we don't care we just want her case to be be solved and that she we can all you know have some closure i will not not bring her back but at least 
we can have some closure and she can rest in peace. I call on you to uh, to turn yourselves in. Conscious has to, to come forward here. What you did was, was not right. An innocent woman lost her life. August 27, 2016, for no reason. And for you to, to go on living your day-to-day life, knowing what you did, think uh, you got to do the right thing and turn yourselves in. The, the impact that you've caused on the pain on an entire family and an entire community within Toronto. I just want you to do the right thing and please bring justice to uh, to this innocent, amazing grandmother who was murdered for no reason. What's your What's your message to these individuals? Those are p- very powerful words from the family and they express exactly how we all feel. Um, these individuals need to know that we are working on this case. We've got ways to figure out who they are and we plan on doing just that the best opportunity that they have is to come in tell us what they know tell us what happened that evening and we can have honest discussions about where we're going to go from there but these individuals need to know that we're never going to give up on this case and eventually there will be a knock on their door and we will be there to arrest them for the murder of peggy Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Andy.